Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 38. Today we're talking about our top openings, our favorite openings of movies. For the four That's a Wrap, I'm Eric Marshall. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And I'm Chris Gullen. And we are three guys with PhDs who like to talk about media and culture and other things. Uh, Yeah, like I said, today it's film openings. Uh, We'll get to that later. It's going to be a one-segment situation this time. Uh, Before we do that, we do what we call pickups, where we kind of catch up with each other. Uh, Today's Thursday, August 13th. What are you guys up to? No, Chris, you go for first this time. I usually go right, go first, and because Eric asks, um, and I usually answer. So let's mix <laughs> it. Well, uh, not too much. Uh, I saw you guys last week, um, so hasn't been been too much been going on since then. I was in Detroit last week uh, visiting, and I'm back in Massachusetts now. We. Uh, met at our uh, old watering hole uh whole foods and uh, and i bought a, a round as uh, was part of the agreement since i lost the jurassic world sequel bet um but i'm back in massachusetts course prep um very very busy uh cuz i've got a lot of uh, a lot of things on the plate this this semester um so I've just uh, become the campus organizer for a really good grassroots group called Public, Edu- Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts, which is a grassroots uh, organization to promote accessibility and affordability of public higher ed in Massachusetts. So uh, very excited to be starting out with, uh, with that group and um, just course prep and lots of movies and pretty much that's about it. Nick? Very cool, Chris. Yes, it was a lot of fun seeing you and Eric last week at Whole Foods and drinking that delicious beer and talking movies and stuff, as it always is. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't have too much to report. I mean, I guess in the interim between shows, I had a, I had a book release party, which was uh, a tremendous amount of fun, hosted at my friend's bar in Detroit called The Whiskey Parlor. And that was, you know, it was a, it was a really great night, uh, about, about 30 people or so. And we, you know, we drank and we ate and we, uh, celebrated the release of the book, um, which also coincided with my birthday. And so that was a lot of fun. So it was like, you know, a, a, you know, dual purpose event, which was, was a lot of fun. And then, um, uh, what else, um, well, speaking of which, um, news to, today, in fact, is is that uh, the same gentleman, uh, this friend of mine for many years who uh, owns the bar where we had the party, also has other bars in Detroit. And I've just partnered with one of them to host an ongoing series of cult movie nights in Detroit uh, every other week starting September 8th. And we're inaugurating with, well... Constant listeners or dedicated listeners will know that Point Break is one of my favorite films of all time. And we're inaugurating with Catherine Bigelow's Point Break. Um, and 
that I'm really looking forward to. That's going to be a lot of fun. They're pretty elaborate brewing views that we're going to be doing. Uh, but um, you know, I'll I'll be hosting the events and curating it. And I'm having a lot of fun right now putting together some October uh, pairings because, of course, that's Halloween month and it goes to my favorite genre. So, um, yeah, about I don't know. Other than that, not not a whole lot going on. Um, Eric. Yeah, that sounds great, man. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I just uh, finished my summer semester today. Uh, today was the last day of class. It's a 12-session um, semester at, uh, at the local community college here. And uh, there's summer one and summer two, and this was summer two. And it's um, in the summer, they compress it into six weeks, so it's two, twice a week, four hours a day. Um, it's like from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., which for me is terrible because I don't like getting up in the mornings that much but or if i do i want to do it on my own terms but um yeah it's pretty cool you know we watched uh we watched only lovers left alive today because you know we all love that movie sure and mm-hmm. uh, it's weird watching with a class because especially at nine in the morning um they didn't respond that well to it as a whole <laughs> um probably not surprisingly uh i think some of them were having trouble following it or staying awake through it you know that sort of thing um, really yeah, yeah. Even um, though it's set in Detroit? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's, wow. the, that's the really the only thing they picked up on. They're probably tired, too, because the end of the semester for them, they have papers and exams and stuff, too. But um, it was a little weird. But, you know, I was watching it, and it made me really, like, want to double down on my dislike of blockbuster films you know because like i I told them today i (laughs) don't i like that (laughs) yeah i i told them today i I said you know i mean on the one hand like i like a good nutritious meal you know well-rounded with vegetables and like well-cooked you know proteins yeah like something really nice and i also like taco bell you know (laughs) i can like only lovers left alive and uh you know jurassic (laughs) world um but watching um only lovers left alive made me realize just how unnutritious you know like the avengers was or whatever so I'm going to double down on the discussion from last week on that. So Jurassic yeah. World is the Taco Bell yeah. of motion pictures. Yeah, 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 more or less. <laughs> so, um, but no, but it was nice to watch it again, you know, because I didn't really, I mean, whatever. I, I, you know how it is when you teach. You're teaching for the one or two people, maybe three if you're lucky, that get it. You know, who get the art film, who get the the deeper meanings, who understand and love or want to love film, and those those are the people you teach for, um, in my opinion. Maybe that's the wrong way to do it, but that's that's you know. So well, no, they, they certainly make coming to class every 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 class a pleasure. You look out into the uh, you know the eyes, and you see those two that are always engaged, and two or, you know two or three or four that are always engaged and have questions or write fabulous work and. I don't think it's a bad thing to say you're, you know, you're, you're focusing on them because uh, you know they're actually looking at you and they're paying attention. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean we do, we, we do, we do sort of like scan, you know, our our classes from left to right, top to bottom, and walk around and you know vary our volume just to keep them on their feet. But you're right, Eric. I mean, it's it's those students that are, uh, in, you know, especially appreciative of what it is that we're trying to do in the classroom that you, that really make, you know, coming to class a lot of fun. Yeah. And a lot of times they're not the same ones that walk in interested in film, 
You know, right. sometimes they walk in indifferent and walk out interested. That's how I was when I had a film class. You know, and those, and sometimes they are. You know, they're they're straight through already interested and want to like like delve deeper. And that's and it's nice. You know, and I had a couple of those in this class, and it was it was really nice. It was a nice class. I'm kind of you know, it's always that bittersweet. Sorry to see him go, but glad I don't have to drive out there at nine in the morning anymore. You know, sort of thing. So I get the next three weeks not not teaching any classes, um, just doing a lot of tutoring. Um, and you know, I'm gonna try to get some a lot more writing done and editing and stuff like that, and just enjoy the rest of my summer. So that's that's my update. Excellent. Hey, uh, hey, Nick is the uh, is the Bruin View schedule gonna be posted online? Yeah. Well, once I mean, I have to put together a couple of months worth of stuff, and I mean, I just finished writing a press release for it. Um, and then the, uh, PR people at pop, who are the other people that are associated with this, um, they've got to do their thing. So it's going to be a little while, but they're going to heavily promote it because it's, it's the week of like, you know, the jazz fest downtown. It's officially sort of like the, the kind of end of summer, uh, festivals in Detroit. And we're coming and we're doing it on the eighth right after that. And that's the seventh. And then in the very following night, after I do cult movies is um, they're doing um, stand up at this venue. So it's a, it's a nice thing that we're going to be doing uh, every night. There's going to be entertainment at this particular venue. Speaking of which last night I went down to um, new center park in Detroit across from the Fisher theater and watched splendor in the grass, uh, which was absolutely just a magnificent evening. The most perfect weather across. From I saw your post on Facebook. That was really nice. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, I think. The Fisher, the lobby of the Fisher, I'd put it up there with anything, you know. And it's, uh, yeah, and, and watching what I consider to be, it's not my favorite Natalie Wood film, but it, it is, it's the greatest performance of her career is in Splendor in the Grass. I've seen it 50 times, so. Cool. That is awesome. Yeah, I'm going to try to, did you say, did you say there's going to be stand-up after the movies? No, the following oh, different, oh, different yeah. days. So okay. really, yeah, different days. Yeah, yeah, yeah I understand. Be a good week, and there, and because of all that traffic, and the Checker Bar is in is in uh, Cadillac Square in Detroit. For those familiar, so it's right downtown. There's going to be so much traffic that we're going to be promoting it just at the right time. So the turnout should be strong. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'll try to make it for as many of those as I can as well. Great. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so good, good, good. So hey, uh, listeners, if you're interested in uh, show notes uh, for this episode, you can go to that's a rap show dot com. Uh, you can also do comments and things like that. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go through our top five in a minute or top ten or whatever whatever we're doing, um, and you'll be able to follow along or or you know look ahead or whatever on the on the show notes at that's a rap show dot com and we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Patreon so you can find us at those places. Uh are you guys ready to do this thing? Yes. Let's do it. All right. So uh, we're doing our top openings, and, and this this came about. <laughs> well, we did top endings a while ago. Um, I don't remember what episode it was, but we did top endings quite some time ago, and we were out drinking last Thursday, you know, because Chris was buying us around because he lost the bet, and we were just hanging. We would have 
gone out anyway, you know, because Chris was in town. But uh, <laughs> we were talking about what what should we do for our next episode, and then just the very tail end of the evening, I said, "Hey, let's do top openings. We did top endings. Let's do top openings." And you guys were like, "Yeah, let's do it." And I was like, "Cool, cool, cool." A week later, I I. <laughs> I haven't even come up with ten. Uh, I don't know what my problem is. So well, that's so, because you suggested five. I Eric. suggested five. I changed it in the last minute on us. So. Okay, is that, that's that's what it is then. Yeah, because like I prepared for five, and then uh, we were talking about ten. So there's all this confusion about what we're going to do. But you know what? It's our podcast. We can do what we want. So <laughs> here's, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> um, Chris and Nick have ten, right, guys? Right. Yep. Okay, um, I, I I couldn't be bothered to come up with more than five, uh, so I'm going to play commentator to their six through ten, um, and I'll probably go. Oh yeah, I should have thought of that too, and because uh, I probably should have thought of that because I had some I had some I had a couple different problems with this, like some trouble with it. Um, one of which is just attention span. But um, before we do that, though, let's talk in general about what makes a good opening for us well who wants to go first (laughs) i don't um i'll i'll (laughs) go first okay just to continue what we were talking about before we started um i i think what makes a good opening is it sets the tone of the film it in 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 mise-en-scene and cinematography it uses music to uh, again set the tone, set the theme, get get kind of get the ball rolling, introduce the the primary uh, characters, if you will. Uh, and I think that specific specific genres have ways of opening differently, and and uh, they're 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 fairly typical depending on the genre like the musical usually has some sort of a some sort of an opening number horror usually has a murder or some sort of a a set piece in which it 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 the the protagonist is hinted at or antagonist is hinted at if not necessarily um directly uh, uh, shown right um and then other genres fall 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 in so i i think that it just it gets gets the ball moving and, and attempts to draw uh draw the audience in to really get them draw uh hooked in that that first opening opening scene. And I think the even the opening sequence, the titles, uh work that same way uh to 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 really hook the hook the audience and say something about what the film is going to be uh about. Kind of like the 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 handshake, if you will, of the film. Uh, Nick probably has more to add and can probably say it far more eloquently than I can. No, not really, Chris. I mean, that's perfect. I mean, set, when you say setting the tone, there's that. What more really needs to be said? I think I would add that you know, uh, viewers really only with sort of a vocabulary that includes the modern era will will note that you know, in the the studio era, silent and sound up until basically the late 1950s, early 1960s, title sequences opened the film. Uh, there wasn't really no, very, very, very rarely, probably less than 1% of the time, did you ever have a pre-credit sequence in a film from, you know, the 1920s to the 1960s. Basically, you know, like Chris said, the house composer would come up who was ever under contract, 
the theme would start, the credits would roll. You know, they were usually text credits over, um, you know, basically whatever optical was, was behind it. And that was the credit sequence. You know, now it, in the early 60s, the credit sequences started to become more elaborate. And they would have pre-credit sequences or they would actually have action going on over the credit sequences, you know, setting the tone. So you're seeing live action. Um, but we're all familiar with if you put on a film, usually when it starts, let's say Warner Brothers or Columbia or MGM, and you know the line will roar, and then the theme will kick on, and it'll say, you know, Clark Gable and Judy Garland, and and so there. I mean, that's that was it. So for our purposes, what we decided to do was to be pretty liberal with what constitutes an opening. We would say that we could talk about a pre-credit sequence the credit sequence or basically the post-credit sequence. And basically what we're saying is that the first five to ten minutes are, are fair game in our in our selections for this episode. Eric, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I, I, I like um, the the idea that it's, it's flexible because, like, what is an opening? When we did the endings episode, I think we had a, a somewhat similar um, – a somewhat similar thing, like because you know, but we didn't really talk about what makes an ending because it's kind of obvious. Right. But for some reason, the opening is less obvious in a way, you know. And that was one of the problems that I had was like, what does, like, what is an opening? You know, is it is it a scene? Is it a set piece? Is it the credit sequence? And you know, I think being liberal with the definition was is a really uh, it's a really good idea. Um, and you know, it does. It's like Chris said and, and Nick said it is something that sets a tone. Uh, captures your interest. I know things like that. I know that those of us who've taught screenwriting. I know Nick's taught. Have you taught screenwriting, Chris? Um, not screenwriting per se. I've okay. done writing. Writing for the media, which basically is has screenwriting as a component. Yeah. So, so same sort of thing. So, I think when we teach screenwriting, you know, we always tell our students to have a hook at the beginning. You know, you wanna, you have, you know, you gotta get your reader's attention in those first five pages, right? Um, first one page if you're lucky. I think that sometimes, sometimes I think that's overdone a little bit um, with, with especially with action films, but. Um, but you know it, it's it's the hook, and it, but here's the problem: like every movie you like, probably has a really good opening. Oh, they've all got. Those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, why absolutely. you like it, right? So I think yeah. that was one of the problems I had. It's like, well, I can just name ten movies I like and just argue that they have good openings. That's easy. I can do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, right. what makes a good opening? And I think that was one of the ways I got stuck a little bit. But um, but yeah, I think that's that's right. You know, the, like movies that catch your interest, um, that set a tone, that 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 you remember. You know, Oddly, as I stare at my top. 10 here, Eric, um, I, I would say that fortunately, maybe it might even be on the level of instinct. I think about seven or eight of them are, I would consider or classify them as fairly transformative, uh, they're, as in quote unquote important title like, sequences. For, for you or, or like historically important? No, historically important. And then the yeah. two or three, per, you know, the two or three are, are for me probably. But all, you know, but yeah, as I look at them, I only thought of this as you said it. As I look at them, what makes these are all pretty damned in quote unquote important sequences. Okay. So I guess what we'll do then is, um, I'll have you guys do your six through 10. Um, you know, what we usually do for, for new listeners, um, on top, top, tens is we we go through six through ten really quickly we kind of list them off with like a quick reason why 
and maybe a quick discussion of them, and then we spend more time on our one through five. Right. And since only Chris and Nick have six through ten at the moment, I'll, I'll just kind of comment um, as we go. And so Nick, since I, you have since you have like seventy or eighty of them, why don't you go first? Okay, so all right, so my number ten is actually a tie, and I know you guys hate it when I do ties, but I think you'll understand why. Uh, I think I've actually at this point I've come to expect your ties, Nick. Well, this tie I think is reasonable. You know, um, the the tie is the player touch of evil. Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, yeah. you know, uh, for for listeners who may not be familiar with either film, um, you know, Touch of Evil is a, a, a Universal International product from uh, Orson Welles. Actually, it was considered to be a pretty pretty important and uh, kind of div- uh, deciding factor in the end of the film noir era. That's often cited as perhaps like the last American noir of that original era. And it's got this really elaborate opening, you know, in which there's a, a time bomb that's placed in a moving vehicle and there's a really elaborate crane shot. Uh, and, it, and it shoots about five to six pages, maybe more, I think eight pages of, of uh, screenplay in one shot. And uh, it was really, you know, impressive. Orson always thought he was a bit, it was a bit showy. He was showing off a little bit too much in that shot, but it really was pretty unique and, um, you know, kind of like not really done before. Uh, and I think that's why he didn't like the novelty of it. And of course, the player, Robert Altman's The Player, uh, references that shot while it also recreates it, in, in, in essence, for his, his uh, film, The Player, from, I don't know, 1991, I think, something like that. So I, I thought they were such important openings, and one was sort of a loving homage of the other um, that I couldn't choose between one or the other. So I just listed them at 10. Makes perfect sense. Okay, yeah, I think that with the player, the uh, it, the the player is so much longer than the touch of evil tracking shot on purpose. But what I love about it is that they keep referencing touch of one guy keeps talking about touch of evil. Oh, that tracking shot and touch of evil was great. And every time he says it in the tracking shot, somebody else says, "Yeah, well, what about Bertolucci's? You know, blah blah blah." Or what, if someone mentions like some art film or a foreign film that does it also has a long tracking shot. He's like, "Yeah, I don't know anything about that. Uh, you know, touch of evil though. My, you know, I, I, I Fred really, Ward. Yeah, it's really yeah, it's funny. Fred Ward is Fred Ward. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's a really good. No, that's a good tie. I mean, it makes sense to put those together. Obviously. It was hard to, to privilege one or the uh, one over the other. I you agree. Know, so. Okay. Right. Uh, okay. My number ten um, is the opening to uh, Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Um, I love the fact that the film um, that the opening scene in the diner uh, it just starts and you you kind of have this extended um, dialogue between. Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth. Um, I I love it. I use it to teach. I use that scene to teach uh, all the time, whether it's a 180 degree rule or continuity or dialogue. It's a very useful scene. It's a very well written scene. I think it's it sets up the tone, feel, and mood of Pulp Fiction as a neo noir. And uh, I love the fact that right when they start the robbery, the camera stops, and the dialogue keeps going, and then it goes right into Miser Lou. 
um, the, the credit sequence, which then is interesting because that's kind of this mix between non-diegetic to diegetic sound as the radio changes and it goes right into the next sequence of the film. Um, and then, of course, by the end of Pulp Fiction, it kind of has, it's all wrapped around to the very beginning of the film. So I, I, I really like the, the, the beginning uh, of, uh, of Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. I thought it was, it was clever. I thought it was well done. And uh, very, especially for teaching, it's very, very useful. Oh, I'd have to agree with you. I think that might even be my favorite sequence in the whole film. Uh, oh, yeah. It yeah. seemed to be Tarantino's calling card, really. You know, I mean, uh, Reservoir Dogs was not as widely seen, obviously. Pulp Fiction was his coming out party. And I think everybody was kind of blown away by that opening sequence. I know I was. I was just smiling in the theater watching it, you know. Uh I remember just smiling as it kind of just bathed over me. And I thought, this is, you know, fascinating. This is new. This is interesting. And yeah, it's a great choice. So good. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. It's good. It's good. Especially later in the film when you realize when it takes place. Right. 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 When they come back to it. Yeah. Good. So that's 10, uh, nine, Nick. Nine is dazed and confused, uh, which as um, you guys know, it's, is is uh is is certainly um been on some of my other lists you know uh dazed and confused opens oh it's brilliant after the gramercy logo comes up uh you while the gramercy logo is coming up you hear the slow fade in of uh um sweet emotion you know aerosmith's sweet emotion and right when the tune begins when the snare and the cymbal hit simultaneously we you know we get that instant cut of the 69 ju- is it a 69 yeah the 69 GTO the judge uh in slow mo over cranked making that turn in the parking lot and then we get the close up of them rolling the joint and basically what you have for the first several minutes of days confused is this complete and total immersion immersion and and with like absolute verisimilitude of 1976 uh, and, you know, it's just setting up the major characters of the film because there's really no protagonist to the film. And it's, you know, and then it ends uh, after this sort of like wonderful panoply of, of images of that cut to that montage and that song. Uh, the bell rings and it goes last day of school, May, what was it, May 28th, 1976, you know, as the bell rings. And then it's just... I I was always just, you know, in love with that opening. Like, you know, would like masturbate to it if it was, you know, if it was a, a woman or something. It's that it's that awesome. But like, uh, I never was like sure what the motivation was behind it. But it's just like other than a than a montage. And so uh, the audio commentary clears it all up. And you guys are gonna love this. Um, Linklater said that he was having a root canal and was under massive sedation, and that's when the opening came to him. <laughs> well, I think that's brilliant. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So that's my that's, that's my dazed and confused. It's one of my you know absolute. I, I watch it so often; it just makes me happy. Oh, great! You know that's that's one of the other problems I had with this uh, assignment is that um, sometimes I. I just can't remember how a movie opens and days and confused was one of those where I was like, how does that open again? I just couldn't like bring it to mind. Once you started describing it, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe that was a problem too. For and me. it sets up, you know, everything Eric. like they're yeah. making their paddles in the shop, you know, to go out and whoop, whoop the little eighth graders and, you know, and it, it sets up the <laughs> yeah. clicks of them and, you know, just, you know, all, everything. So it's, yeah. So that was nine. Oh, it's nine for you, Chris. 
Uh, nine for me is one of two films by the same director. Um, and it's Midnight in Paris. Yeah, great opening. Ooh. Still, yeah, it's interesting though. Midnight in Paris. Um, the the music that just that extended, you know, beautiful saxophone with the shots of Paris that um, really foreshadow many of the things that are going to be uh, dealt with. Uh, the themes that are going to be dealt with in the film is beautiful. Uh, I think Woody Allen is a master of the opening sequence. And um, that that is probably the highlight to me in the last several years as far as opening sequences go. So absolutely. I, I mean there's nothing else to say about it. It's just it's a beautiful and then it goes right into the the discussion. Owen Wilson – and this oh, discussion about how wonderful Paris is and all of that. So. Yeah, and, uh, that that Monet as they're standing there and they're talking about Monet, all right. And and there's there are like lily pads are all in front of them. It's beautiful. I agree. That's uh you know it's uh, of of this of that third stage of Alan's career. That is my favorite film with Vicky Cristina just really close in second. But all that imagery is so beautiful. You feel like is it Darius Kanji? I think he's been he's been using as his DP the last several films. Yeah, it's so, yeah. a wonderful way of capturing um, uh, places that make you feel very much like you're there, uh, particularly, you know, when you're watching it in HD on a big screen. So it's, uh, I think it's a great choice. Uh, I, I absolutely am nuts for that film. So, yeah, excellent, yep. excellent. Yeah, I love it. I just rewatched it recently in the last couple of months uh, for the first time in a while. And yeah, it's such a good film. I might add that to my syllabus next semester, actually. Yeah, good call. Yep, yep. So we're at um, eight. Eight. We're getting to the point where I might actually be able to jump in with you guys. So because I do have more than five, but well, you know, whatever. I'll have uh, um, uh, Nick, Nick. Nick, you go for eight, and I eight is. I'm thinking it might be on your list, Eric. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's. it's it's interesting. I mean, I just came to this film recently. Oh, it's on my list for sure. It's it's higher than you though. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's great for me. Yeah, this 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 you know, be, and because it came recently, maybe that's why it's number eight rather than two or three. Mm-hmm. But Persona, Bergman's yeah. Persona, is is a film in which um, you know, and I'll let Eric speak more about it later. I'll just say it's in my list. I was blown away by it. I mean, I think anybody is going to be utterly fucking blown away by that intro because it's. It's mind-blowing, really. And I mean, I purposely, explicitly mind-blowing. It's supposed to be a cosmic fuck you. To, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to sort of even figure out. It's, I think you spend the rest of the film trying to relate the imagery you've seen to the narrative that unfolds. Because they're obviously connected. But it comes so quickly. You, you know, yeah. it's only in the era of the Blu-ray or the DVD or the VHS where you could, you know, really get into that sort of textual analysis of, of the shot. So. Yeah, I agree. Um. It yeah. It's it's higher on my list, and we'll be talking about it. Um. Well, if it's on my list, you know it's in the top five, obviously. Right. <laughs> so, but I mean, we could talk about it now if you want. We can no, no, we'll but, see. Yeah, okay. Um. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> I I thought that might be on your list, Nick. I just wasn't sure where it was going to be. Yeah, um, I thought it might be an honorable mention, but then I, you know, I watched it again online because mm-hmm. I don't have Blu-ray yet, and I was like, nah, it's got to be in the top ten. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so good. Um. 
When you said it was a new film deal, I knew exactly what you were going to say. When you, I know Eric's going to have this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I figured. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it was, what was that, eight? Eight. Yeah, so uh, Chris, you can go with eight. Um, my eight, I think, will probably be somewhere in here for Nick. I I would be shocked if it wasn't, and that would be the opening The Shining. No, it's not. Really? Oh, oh that's God, what a great opening. Yeah. That's that shocking. opening. With that, like the, the car, that, that opening can make you nauseous. You know, I mean, yeah. it's so. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's funny because you look at the similarity of like the scenery um, between the shining and the sound of music. How they both have this lush scenery, but the mood established by the openings is completely different, uh, largely to the music. Yeah, um, due, due to the music and the the cinematography, oh my god, that opening is just—it's the foreshadowing of the of of the horror of the 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 solitude. The oh my goodness, it's just a—it's a wonderful opening sequence. Um, is Kubrick's *The Shining*? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm really surprised. I'm really surprised. And, uh, it's not. Yeah, I know. I didn't. I didn't think of it. I think I immediately thought of it the day when Eric mentioned it last Thursday. Is that when we got together? And and then it yeah. I, it left my mind. And so um, no, it's not on there. It is an, a magnificent opening. Like I said, you almost get like airsick or carsick or you know plane sick when you're watching it on a large screen because it's it's like you know it's it's like the. Uh, Attraction at Disney, you know Disney World, Soren. You know, <laughs> except yeah, it is like Soren. Barely oats, you know, and it's like it's not worth. It's 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 a tough ride. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Um, I have a I have a potential number eight. I can I can jump in with you guys if you don't mind. Oh, um, go for it. Uh, my number eight would be uh, probably American Beauty. Mm, oh yeah. I almost it was almost on the list. Yeah, it's um. It was kind of tied for with another one, which I probably won't even mention unless you guys do. But um, it's you know it, it's more from a narrative standpoint than a visual standpoint, but it's a little bit of both because it, it the voiceover of American Beauty sets up the entire thing. You get Janie, you get uh, Carolyn, you get Lester, obviously, and just in the first like three or four minutes, you get he's going to die in a year. You get exactly what everybody has. My favorite shot is when you see Carolyn, she's got that rose, and it shows the rose, and it pans down, and she clips it with her shears, mm-hmm. and then yeah. she oh, brings so- it up to her face to smell it, like just like this kind of you know phallic object that she's just cutting off. You, you know, it tells you everything you need to know about her from his point of view. And, you know, just the mise-en-scene of that whole sequence, you know, getting uh, going up to when they leave for work, you know, work in school. Uh, I think that's a really good opening just from a from a screenwriting point of view and also from a visual point of view. It sets everything up. And once you get past that opening, you know, you're in the movie. You're like, OK, I get what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm buying into it. So that's that would be my number eight if I if I had would a you tie eight. it with Sunset Boulevard because of the same sort of uh, uh, objectives they achieve. Sunset Boulevard is up there too. It's not in my list, but it was the, one of the ones that popped. Sunset Boulevard kept popping in my mind, and I kept forgetting about it. It popped back in, and I forget about it. Forget so, about it. <laughs> but yeah, I keep because like, Sunset Boulevard is such a great opening, you know. So so yeah, that would be a, that would be a good tie actually, because um, those like like your touch of evil and player. 
mm-hmm. right? Those are similar in a, in a certain way as well. Um, I love that opening of Sunset Boulevard. I, can't, I keep forgetting about it. Every time I think about it, I'm not somewhere where I can write it down. So I thought about yeah. Sunset Boulevard a couple of times, too. Was, yeah. I, I, tried to put, I tried to put it on there, but I thought about it, too. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard is so good. Right, What's your so. number seven, Nick? Okay, so my number seven is... Um, Oh, I don't know if either of you have seen this film. Uh, it, it's one of the great horror openings of all time. I've got a couple of horror films in here, unsurprisingly. And it's um, Dario Argento's Suspiria. And, and mm, for, for, list, mm. for listeners who know the film, they know why I've chosen that. Because it's, uh, it's one of the most stylized and violent uh, openings uh, in, a, in a motion picture ever. Um, sort of Argento makes the death of these two young women... Um, art, you know, uh, it's, I could link to it on the show, in the show notes, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's this, uh, incredibly elaborate, hyper stylized, hyper saturated. It was, I believe the last Technicolor film shot Argento had, that's why Don's having so much, you know, was having trouble and originally just trying to get negatives in Rome and everything because, uh, uh, it was the last Technicolor film shot. I mean, he got like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had to I think it was in Beijing where the last Technicolor film uh, camera was oh that he had access to. And so it's it's one of the most exceptionally beautiful horror films ever made. And the opening with the Goblin score, it's so hypnotizing and scary. If anybody watches Suspiria on like anywhere close to Halloween and by themselves with that soundtrack and that opening, they're going to shit themselves. I mean, it's and it, but if I, I need you guys to watch it so you can see. Just exactly what I'm talking about. Suspiria. I've seen Suspiria. I don't, but I don't. I'm blanking on the opening. You I can, really yeah, am. It's possible to blank on it you, because it's like it's it marks you. You know, really, you can't. This must have been a long time ago that you saw it. It's been a long time. It's yeah. been like a, no, like a number of years since I've seen Suspiria. Um, and I'm just. It's possible that I came into it after the opening. Because I'm really blank, I'm I'm really blanking on the opening I know of the film, but I know I haven't seen it. So, okay. um, so yeah, I would love to see a clip of that. We can maybe put it on the Facebook page or on the show notes or both. Sounds good. Suspiria. Um, Argento's got a Argento's that his name Argenti Argento right? He's got Argento. A, he's got a thing for openings for opening scenes. You know, sure. like really kind of dramatic sorts of things. Was Suspiria? I don't know. Uh, where are we, Chris? Seven. Seven. Um, yeah, the opening that I had, um, this, the, the titles itself are very simple, but it's a really powerful opening scene, and that is to Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yeah. You would. <laughs> you would. I would. Yeah, I really love the opening when, um, when they're, they're taking the TV out of um, – I don't even remember the characters' names. It's been a while since I've seen the film, and they're taking it to sell it for truck money. It, it's it's it, it it takes something that is really kind of a banal event and elevates it with the use of angle and the 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 music that that wonderful score that Clint Mansell did for Aronofsky uh, with the Kronos Quartet is just haunting. There's a reason they use it in so many film scores or film uh, uh, um, trailer commercials. Uh, just it's just so fucking good, and it's it's creepy 
and and you have this so you have this creepy score this d d d d d d d d d d d d d d d d but but the day that that they're doing this it's a beautiful day on Coney Island right it's this beautiful sun drenched day so it's really this neat the opening really sets up the film very, very nicely because you have this contrast of the darkness that is going on in their lives uh, that is about to happen over the course of these next two or three seasons that is addiction, the spiral into addiction over all the characters. But at the same time, you have this beautiful, beautiful day in New York um, uh, with this action, that, you know, this really kind of pathetic thing that they're doing. Uh, to get drug money, so that's a that's a very very good opening. I think, I think. Yeah, this is a good opening. You know, uh, I'm sure you know his his movie Pie. Um, mm-hmm. Also, Clint Mansell's score, and that's got an interesting yep. opening as well. Yep. I'm a big uh, fan of Pie, and yeah. I'm a big fan of Clint Mansell. Yeah, me too. Me too. I had that Pie soundtrack for a long time, and I look on repeat forever. Soundtrack. You know? Yeah, it's a good soundtrack. And you know, I mean, I used to listen to Requiem for a Dream quite a bit. And I even have the they did a remix version of Requiem called Requiem Remixed. Um, but it got to the point where the associ- the associations with everything in the film yeah. were so strong. I, I had to had to only take it out once in a while. It's, yeah. a, it's a it's a pretty depressing score. Yeah, for sure. I, I should probably rewatch Requiem because I, I it blew me away when I saw it in the theater and I watched it another time after that and I was like yeah yeah and then I, the third time I watched it I was just like man I feel like you're hitting me over the head I don't know what ha- I don't know what changed between the second and third viewing but I was just like yeah I get it drugs are bad right whatever yeah I, I don't know what happened to me I should rewatch it though because I haven't seen it in a decade I so. used to screen it for intro. Uh for editing all several for about three or four semesters in a row, I screened it and it got to the point where, uh, I just got sick of it because it just, it's such a downer. It's so depressing, right? There's, there's really nothing in the film to kind of bring you. There's very little comic relief, uh, if any. And it's just, it's such a, especially that ending that, you know, especially the very, very end, the ass to ass. Oh my God. That's such a, a brutal scene to watch. So, um, so yeah, that's a great choice, Chris. Sadly, I can't comment it too much on it because I saw, I've only seen Requiem once and that, what year was that? 2005 or six, something like that. Maybe even earlier. Yeah. Earlier, earlier. And so I, I saw it once when it came out and, you know, once was enough. It was kind of like uh, um, I was really impressed with it. Like Eric said, that first viewing, I didn't see it in the theater. I was I was like, yeah, pretty, pretty just, you know, it was kind of just jaw dropping and I'd been hit over the head with an anvil. But um, I didn't even remember the beginning until you started talking about it, you know. So it's uh, I think it's a great choice. It's just something I haven't seen in Ten years or whenever it came out, yeah. So, um, that was, was that number seven. Yes, yeah. My my number seven. If I had a number seven, it would be um, <laughs> uh, Bob Cat Goldthwaite's "God Bless America." Have you guys seen this film? No. We should talk about. You know, remember in episode one? No, I haven't we, seen this at all. When we in episode one, when we talked about um, what was episode one? Um, that movie that you liked, Nick. Oh, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Perks of Being a Wallflower. Um, we haven't done a single movie 
podcasts in a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's how we started this this podcast was you saying, I really love this film. Let's watch it and talk about it right. uh, because it spoke to you in some way. Uh, I might consider like pushing for the same for God Bless America, even though it's a couple of years old now. Uh, it's this total farce. I really love this film. It's a total farce. Um, <laughs> I've talked about it before. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it has Joel Murray. It's directed by Bobcat Goldthwaite, and, and it's 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 a total satire of um, of of media culture of of just the insipid, you know, kind of nature of reality TV and news and and, and game shows and stuff. And it's got this really plucky um, young actress, and, and it, it plays with a lot of like cinematic tropes but in the beginning you have joel murray pissed off in bed he's listening to his neighbors they're being really loud and then he goes over and kills them like brutally and ends up shooting this baby he shoots a baby with this i think it's a shotgun i don't know guns very well but like throws it up and shoots it and it's, it's just the most horrendous and gruesome and terrible thing you'll ever see and it's so funny and Seriously, it's so gruesome, and it's one of those openings where you're like, "Did he just do that? Did he just do that?" It's so funny. I mean, it ends up it's a dream sequence, like he's a fantasy. Ah, uh, okay. You know, I, I don't know if I should say that, or I maybe mean, I don't know if I should edit that out or keep that Oops. in. But it's in the first five minutes of the film, so I guess it's okay to say that it ends up being like it's quickly revealed that he was just fantasizing about that. But it's but just visually, as the viewer, you're like, what, what? But you know, I remember when it came out, Eric. The uh, you know when when he was being interviewed and stuff like that. It was it was hard for me to figure out that this is the same guy. You know. That that I had known twenty years ago, and for the type of humor he was doing, being in such a serious satire, and I'm, yeah. you know, and and then of course, and then you talked about it to me over drinks and coffees, and I was like, so I'd love to check it out. Yeah, he's got a new film out, a documentary about this guy. Um, uh, I can't remember his first name, but last name is Crimmins, a uh, um, comedian who talks about having been uh, molested as a child. It's, it seems like a pretty interesting documentary. It's out right now. It just came out, oh. so. He was on Fresh Air last week. The only thing I know about this film is that Bobcat Goldthwaite is a regular panelist on uh, wait, 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 Don't Tell Me. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. <laughs> I'm so and he's, glad. And he's mentioned, yeah, he's wonderful on that show. He's so good on that. He really is. He's very, very smart. Um, and he he's talked about the film, but that's the only thing I've, um, I'm familiar with it. That's a pretty shocking opening. Though. It was on Netflix. I don't know if it still is a Netflix streaming. Um I had some of my online classes watch it. Uh, I don't know. It just it, it the film tickles me to no end. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, that was my seven. If uh, six, you guys know, want to go to six? Nick, oh me, I'm up. Okay, my number six is uh, Jaws. Actually, um, and for I think the obvious reasons. Yeah. Oh, uh, it, it, there's a wonderful soundscape. There's a great oral quality when the uh, Universal logo comes up, uh, and then of course we get John Williams, you know, famous undulating two note theme. Uh, you know, and the tempo is real slow, and then it starts to speed up. 
uh, and it's an underwater shot, POV shot of the shark swimming, and then it builds, and then we get to the campfire and the setting up of the boy and the girl, and he's drunk, and she goes swimming, and and then the attack occurs, and it's just ruthless, you know, it's just brutal. Uh, you feel so helpless, you know, and you, and it's an unseen predator, which makes it even all the worse. And when she's holding that buoy, you know, and you know she's just sort of been bitten half. And then she just goes under the water, you know, as she's screaming and the music is crescendoing and she just under the water. And then it's just total quiet. We get to see the sun sort of rising in this long shot that Spielberg has uh, and the guys passed out, you know, in the foreground. And that's it. You know, and that's like, seriously, that's that's (laughs) yeah, that's 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 it's 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 just a phenomenal, really important opening, I think, for the 1970s. Yeah, especially for the time period. Yeah, it, it just it, it grabs you. There's no way you could not be interested in that film after seeing that opening sequence. Yeah, I agree. I would call that a hook. That's yeah. a hook. It's a hook. Hey, just to go back real quick before we move on. Um, uh, God bless America was 2011, so it's it's you know four <laughs> years now, and and it is streaming on Netflix. So just for listeners. So anyway, uh, so Chris number seven. My number seven, uh, you mean number six? Six, six. Yeah. yeah. My number six is also a horror film. Oh. Uh, I actually thought Nick's Jaws would be earlier. Um, my number six is Scream. Oh, yeah. 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 Which I love that opening. The it, it It's a great hook. The It's scary. Uh, I saw Scream in the theater. And immediately from the first couple of that, that first phone call, you know, she's gone. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, f- I, I thought it was funny too. Uh, I mean, I, I think I'm kind of twisted. I mean, I, I know Scream was intended to be funny, but I really found Scream funny. And I, I found all the films really, really funny. Um, so I found that opening that that whole you know what's your favorite scary movie and you know it, it's Jason's mother no you're wrong <laughs> and she kills he guts the guts the boyfriend um, I love that I I thought it was a great kind of reinvigoration of horror at a crucial time when it needed to be in the mid nineties yep. um, it was kind of a combination of of humor. And a horror, which I thought was 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 great, it had Drew Barrymore. It was had a Wes Craven behind the helm, and the opening just kind of grabs you. It kind of grabs yeah, it's, you. It's, it's, a, a, it's a good opening. It's, oh it's yeah, a little story all by itself too. It is. It's uh, it, it's all those those the the tropes of horror that made me fall in love with the genre, uh, right right there, and I was I was eating it up. See, I had the exact opposite response. I too saw it in the theater. Really? Yeah. And uh, no, I love it. I think it's a great opening. But when you said that you knew she was a goner, you were definitely ahead of the entire population because that was the whole point of having Drew Barrymore. And as you just said, was nobody knew or anticipated she'd be, spoiler alert, everybody, killed in the opening sequence. She was the 
she was the focal point of the poster and the first name on the film, much like right. Janet Lee was to Psycho. Nobody, right. she'd be getting the axe at the end of the first act either. So I had, I couldn't, be, I thought it was a dream sequence or some bullshit because I'm like, as she's running and sees her, her parents pulling up and they're like, you know, mid nineties Taurus or Sable or whatever. And she's like, Oh, finally, you know, and she's running and he just comes up behind her and just, you know, plunges the dagger into her into her heart repeatedly i was like are you kidding me <laughs> what you know it was like the greatest sort of like pulling out of the rug from underneath you uh that that i had seen in a horror opening in a long long time and i agree i think it's a brilliant opening i but i no way was i anticipating it though really yeah i i i yeah i was not surprised it, that that did not shock me um the i mean she getting getting disemboweled in front of her parents that was yeah i was like whoa you know but but no i wasn't i wasn't surprised that she got she got the axe right away so but yeah. whatever i was there surprised which is what makes it a good opening i think so yeah that's a good one um my number six would be history of violence do you guys know this film sure of course oh yeah yeah there's yeah. that crazy really slow tracking shot I don't remember how it opens. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, it's got this really, really slow tracking shot following these guys who are driving their car very slowly in front of this, uh, like one of those one-story long motel sort of situations. Mm-hmm. And they're having this conversation. And the, the guy wants to, the other guy to go in and get some, like take care of the, you know, the hotel and get some water or something. And, Is and it in just, back, Eric? No, it's, uh, I don't believe so. No, it's um, it's it's two of the bad guys when they're looking right. for what's his name, but you don't know that, of course. And it's just it, you go. yeah. And the and the scene continues on once the guy goes inside and he ends up killing the the um, killing the clerk in the hotel. Um, the great thing about openings is there are no spoilers, right? Right, because <laughs> they're openings, right? Um. He ends up killing him very casually. It just really sets up how like casual of killers these people are, and it's just really gruesome. But beyond the gruesomeness of of the murder, it's just this it's just this extremely slow tracking shot, and you're just thinking to yourself the whole time, "What am I watching? Like, what is this? What's going? To, you, you get that something's going to happen, and it's going to be pretty bad, but you don't know why. And I think it's because of just the way they're following these guys in there. In there, it's it's all for me very visual. The opening, and then like I said, the other guy walks into the hotel, and, and yeah, it's it's gruesome, man. It's, yeah, I didn't. I don't recall the opening. I've seen the movie a few times, but not lately. You know, I remember when it came out. Obviously, anything Cronenberg does, I'm always interested in. Shaviro was uh, the our colleague Stephen Shaviro had written about the film. He really loved it, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he, and I, I watched it probably twice because I also I love um, oh the actress's name I can't think of her name the blonde she was on ER she plays the wife yeah it's not Naomi Watts it's um, um yeah, she's an Italian actress yeah Italian, uh, Philadelphia uh, I can't think of her name but. Uh, and Biabella, Biabella, um, that's it. Yeah, and yeah. and of course the, the you know one of the hearts of the film is their relationship, uh, and 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 I just it's funny when you mention the film because I I the film the the general film stays very much in my mind and and I remember very specific scenes so well and certain reveals, but I didn't remember the opening at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really sets it up. It really sets it up. It sounds like it, yeah. It sets up that sort of like uh, very dubious, um, you know, the, the which would fit with Cronenberg, yes. you know. I actually was tempted to to put in my honorable mentions the Dead Zone because of its opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm I'm interested to see his uh, uh, maps to the stars. I haven't seen it. It was from last year. I haven't it's seen pretty it. Pretty divisive. Yeah. 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 But very that's much not so. From from him. So right. Right. Exactly. The man exactly. who made Crash, and I'm not talking about Crash. I'm yeah. Crash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh God, that movie Crash. <laughs> anyway, so that's my number six. Uh, so now we're in the top five. Yay! So we're on top five. Uh, we usually alter the order. We were doing the same order last time because there are only two of you for the first several. But we can alter the order now of who goes first. And I don't really care who wants to go first for for five. I'll go. Okay. I'll go. Do okay. It. Here's my. Tell num- you. Here's my number five. and this railroad in the bargain. Now, I want you to apologize to this. Yes, sir, can I help you? If they move, kill them. Directed by Sam Peckinpah. There we go. So... There's that wonderful line that William Holden utters right before the title card, the director title card comes up in the brilliant The Wild Bunch, guys. Wild Bunch is my number five because it's it's one of those transformative opening uh, credit sequences. Um, you know, not unlike uh, Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, they're both westerns and they both kind of unfold in similar ways, but... Um, Peck and Paws is so highly, it's such a highly stylized opening. Uh, it's so intricate in its blocking and its staging. And of course, uh, especially the blocking as these, uh, these guys all sort of march into town for this one last heist. Uh, the music's incredible. It sets up all the themes that are to follow in the, in the film. Um, the, the, the macro close-ups of, of like the, the ants devouring the scorpion and everybody gathering around it and just gleefully watching this orgy of death. It's, uh, it's, it's just one of my favorite openings of all time. And it's so impactive. I mean, that's what they, that's what they named, you know, the title of Peckinpah's biography was, you know, if they move, kill them. It's cause it's like, this great line from one of my all-time favorite actors, William Holden. So you've got this great five-minute opening s- sequence of these guys, you know, of William Holden and, and uh, Warren Oates and Ernest Borgnine walking into walking into town, and we get these these um, very stylized freeze frames, which are uh, which are, are like chiaroscuro, you know. And then whenever you get a freeze frame, it would be a part of the title, so it would say like freeze frame art direction by freeze frame score by you know just it seems so common today but it was really one of those very very important and kind of like changed modern filmmaking i think that that opening sequence yeah that is a a really good choice yeah good call nick that's that was not on my radar yeah me too good 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 the whole genre though you know it always eludes me so for sure, yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, um, yeah, excellent, excellent. So that was your number five. I liked the, the orgy of death. I like that uh, description, man. That was uh, that's good. <laughs> Watching the orgy of death. Orgy of death. Yeah, uh, our, our our pal Roger Ebert uh, 
declare publicly declared the film a masterpiece too. <laughs> it's one of my all time faves. Well, and I just, you know, I'm I'm not shy about my my adoration of William Holden. He's one of my favorite actors. He, oh, he's he, great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's you don't have to defend that. <laughs> I don't think. I'm, really. I'm not defending. It. I'm just <laughs> yeah. saying that that's why that's that's one of the reasons it's it's in my top ten is because it's it's one of his greatest moments. I think. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, cool. I can go with number five, or you can, Chris. Doesn't matter. Um, go for it, Eric. Yeah, mine is totally cliche and predictable, and you know, canon. But it's going to be Citizen Kane. Um, you know, it's one of the all-time greatest opening scenes. Um, not just for the rosebud part, but because of that 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 the score. Right. Um, and you know, it's it's. It's actually an interesting opening because it misleads the audience. Every time I show Citizen Kane to students, they think it's going to be a horror film, mm-hmm. you know, because it's so creepy and you get those weird dissolves. You know, uh, you have the that, that window in the in the Xanadu. It's in the same spot on the screen, top kind of center, um, a little to the right, and it, and every dissolve you get. The window stays in the same place, even though you're getting closer to Xanadu. And there's that one shot where it's in the water; it's reflected in the water, but it's still in the same place. Yep. Um, and you get that that desolate golf course and the and the zoo that's been you know kind of with no animals in it and all that weird stuff, you know. Um, and then you get that dissolve in. And that shot of just the mustache and the rosebud, and then the when the globe breaks and the nurse walks in, it's got it's in this weird fisheye lens, very abstract, very impressionistic, kind of avant-garde, weird shot, you know, a series of shots when you're inside the castle inside Xanadu, um, and it's just I think that's a masterful opening, um, and I keep debating on whether to include the newsreel sequence in the opening as well because i think that yeah i think yeah you can't separate them i don't think i don't think so either because you fade to black and then you get news on the march (laughs) you know And, and that goes on for like eight minutes or however long it is and you know it's still misleading because you don't know what this film's about usually a good opening tells you it either gives you something to think about or it tells you what the movie's about, but you have no idea what the genre of this movie is. And it's not really a genre piece anyway, but you don't know what to expect from it, what it's going to be until, you know, really until you get to um, probably to the Thatcher library, you know, when you start getting the flashbacks. So it's one of those weird openings that does not do what an opening should do in some ways. You know, it gives you something to think about with the rosebud, but, you know, the hook kind of, it's almost MacGuffin. But um, but yeah, I think that's a- what makes Kane great, though. Mm-hmm. That is, that's what makes the film so so far ahead of its time, is that it was able to do all of those things, um, in a time when, um, openings were fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's in my honorable mentions. I just didn't put it in there because I figured one of you guys would. Yeah. Um, honestly, and and uh, it's funny as you were as you were breaking it down, Eric. Uh, I'd forgotten about the uh, the reflection in the water, and didn't remember that the it's actually in the same place on the screen. You know, that's I'll be looking for that next time. Yeah, it really and, holds you, your eye there. That's a, it's incredible, and I and we've all we all know the, the sort of fisheye canted angle shot of the reflection of the nurse walking in and the the broken uh, snow glow. But uh, as as you were describing it, it said I suddenly thought of um, 
in Shenandoah, I thought of Bunuel and Dolly because it, it it could just as easily be in that film, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, Wells has that uh, avant-garde film uh, from the uh, must have been the late '30s. Uh, what's it called now? Um, Silly. Uh, it's in those collections of avant-garde films oh. that you see. Um, it's really Mesh, weird. Mesh, meshes of the afternoon. No, 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 no. That's Maya Darren from the 1960s. Um, oh. What am I thinking about? Well, anyway, he has that one. It's on those collections. I don't know, but he so he does have a history of avant-garde film, right? right. You know, with 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 inventive you know, uh, cinema, cinematography and stuff like that. Um, so so yeah, you're right. I mean, Shenandoah is around the same time, right? 19. 20, 20, well, no, twenty nine, right? I think. I, yeah, something like that. I think so. I think. Well, but, you know, within a dozen, fifteen yeah. years, but, but yeah, I mean, it's a purely surrealistic frame. Yeah, you know? it's and, called the Hearts of Age. That's the. the of, oh, yeah. I don't know it. Oh. Google told me about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good old Google. You know, the other thing about that opening though is, um, I don't know if you guys. Uh, I mean, you probably know this, but the uh, it's 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 cribbed from Snow White. Right, because Snow White, Kane was forty one, Snow White was thirty nine, and the opening of Snow White has a big castle on a hill, and it has a dissolve forward and a dissolve forward, and then a cut into the the castle. It's know that. Yeah, if you ever look, I didn't know that either. Yeah, you look at the very opening of Snow White and opening of Citizen Kane. It's you know, I mean, Kane does it better, obviously, but it's it's definitely it's hard to it's hard to argue that it's not cribbed from Snow White in some way. (laughs) So it's just kind of kind of interesting. So maybe I'll find a clip of that at some point and show you yes. and put it up there. So so Kane, you know, predictable and, and cliche and canon, but you know what? That's fine. One of us needs to have it. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. <laughs> right. Right. He adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Uh, no, make that, he, he romanticized it all out of proportion. Better. To him, no matter what the season was, this was still a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tune. And that was Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, oh, Manhattan. Which, yeah, which opens <laughs> up Woody Allen's Manhattan. Nice. Which is my number five. <sighs> wow. That's such a gorgeous uh, opening. Two Woody Allen movies. Chapter one. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think because also I've actually I've actually done this where I've actually been in Manhattan in kind of a rainy type weather and I've had um, I've had my iPad iPod on listening to Rhapsody in Blue while walking through New York. Oh nice. Oh, let me tell you, there there are some great experiences of my life and that is one of them. Walking through Manhattan listening to Rhapsody in Blue at night. Uh, when it's kind of rain, you know, fin- uh, rain is just finished and the streets are glistening. And boy, oh boy, New York City is my favorite city in the world. I never lived there, but it's my favorite city in the world. And um, that film, the op- that opening just kind of captures everything I love about New York and everything Woody Allen loves about New York. Um, and it's the perfect, I mean, I think Rhapsody in Blue is the... I guess if New York City had to have a classical piece of music as its theme, Rhapsody in Blue would be it. 
by yeah. by 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 Gershwin. Yeah, I, I I think so. So that's just you know, it's it's like I said, Woody Woody's got a thing for openings. He's really well, good at it. Yeah, that's the as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's the definitive Woody opening. It's yeah. it's uh, if if somebody, even though oddly he has so much dislike of that film, it's, it's shocking how much he dislikes that film. Yeah, this is funny, isn't it? I have yeah. I just you know because in the American Masters documentary, he just you know he he does not care for that film at all, and that and and I think that's some of the best collaboration between Gordon Willis and Woody Allen. Um, I'm assuming, yeah, yeah. Gordon shot that. He shot Annie and Man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. that black yep. and, black and white photography is just stunning, and the fireworks, and just the sort of like the um, uh, Woody is so. Not only is it New York and Gershwin, but it's also equal an equal third Woody because of the sort of you know chapter one, you know, and then the <laughs> whole and he's like rewriting that thing over. Yeah, and over. I love that. It's just it's just like it's it's a perfect you know encapsulation of Woody Allen and. Um, it's funny because he he does not like that film. Mm, interesting, but that's my number five. Manhattan. Manhattan. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good, good drink too. It's funny that you know you have two Woody Allen's, Chris, in your top. You know, top ten. I I haven't had. Any, I don't have any. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic. Yeah, well, man. you know, it's the weirdest thing, and, and this happens when we do the top ten sometimes too, where like. The things that I'm most fond of, I forget about. You know, I don't know what it is. Like, I just, like, man, well, is obviously a wonderful opening, you know, but for some reason, I don't know. Um, so number five for Chris was Manhattan. Number five for me was Citizen Kane. And Nick's number five was? Uh, uh, the Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch. Okay, so we have so number, number, we four. Have number five then. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number four. Well, I'll start number four because it's already been talked about. My number four is Persona. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, and uh, th- there was a time where I had the opening of Persona practically memorized. I had seen it so many times. Uh, we had this, uh, I might have said this in a previous episode, but we had this gorgeous 16 millimeter print of that film um, at Wayne State because I think like, no one, sh- only like Les Brill would show it and I would show it. And I think that's the only, <laughs> the only people who would show the film. So it was like really pristine. It was a really good print for a while. But it's and it's good to show on film because the very opening of the film, which I think is really significant, is it's the uh, it's an image of the the filaments inside of a film projector warming up, um, and then you get all these weird disconnected a disconnected montage of film going through a projector, and then you get these like people someone's hands moving around, and you get some more film going through a projector, and you get a picture of a penis a semi-erect penis and then like all these weird uh, things in this weird uh sound really jarring sound i can't Like I said, it's a cosmic fuck you, is what I think. It's so, it so much is, and then you get this long montage. It must go, must it goes about six or seven minutes, maybe, um, at least five minutes of 
you know, um, of hands and then of, of, of an upside down uh, uh, cartoon and then uh, a dead, what seems to be a dead body. And then, uh, you know, you get someone bleeding a, like a sheep, you know, like, like blood coming out of its throat, um, you know, close up of that. And you get a, a, a nail through someone's hand, someone actually like pounding a nail through a hand. These aren't in order. I'm, I'm not setting them in order because I, I, I could have... 10 years ago, five years ago, even, but it's just not fresh. But, um, and you're like, what am I watching? You know? (laughs) And then it ends up with this boy, um, in a, what seems to be a morgue and he gets up and he starts looking at the, at the camera. And then there's this image of a woman's face blurry and he starts kind of, I'm doing it right now. You can't see me, but I'm doing it right now. Like rubbing his hand against it. And the, and the face seems to shift a little bit uh, you know, it, between two different faces. And you don't know at the time what's going on, but, um, and then it, it fades to white and then you get into the movie proper or what you might consider the movie proper. Um, and you know, the movie's about identity and it's about these two women who maybe two women who are trying to find their own identities, maybe sharing an identity. It's not clear. <laughs> right. And then, a lot of that stuff in the montage comes back later in some way or another. Not all of it, but a lot of it, um, especially the film stuff, because there's a part of the film where later on in the film where it looks like the film is burning up in the projector. And you know, I've heard stories about when they showed this back in 1966 that the projectionist would run back to the booth thinking that the film was actually had messed up and was burning in the projector. You know, it's it's a very convincing thing. You know, it doesn't work on DVD. It doesn't even work these days because no one knows what that looks like anymore, you know, unfortunately. But, um, but you know, that Blu-ray release is so crisp. It's so pristine. It looks so good. And um, I'm really happy with the Blu-ray release, too, because they have a different translation than the translations I've seen on VHS and um, and the 16 millimeter, which is nice because it's in Swedish. But it's just one of those, like, I mean, Nick, you said it right. It's a cosmic fuck you in a way. You know, it's, it's, it. And not in a hostile way, but no, in a mental no. way. Like, what the hell? Yeah. You know? It starts off by jarring you and confusing you. And, and then you get the, the, the narrative of the film because it is a narrative film. But, in the back of your head the whole time is that opening sequence. Like, what was that? Like, why was that there? <laughs> you know, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, is the whole movie going to be like this? Yeah. And, uh, cause I saw it in a film class that uh, Les Brill had shown it, um, shown it in his class. And, uh, I fell in love with it that evening when he showed it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this film is incredible. I got it on VHS, watched it over and over and over again, wrote my seminar paper that, that, that semester on that. Um, crazy stuff but yeah that, that's my that's my number four just because it's it's unparalleled really well, you know as we were having drinks last week and talking about this film not only was i just you know uh, expressing how much i also have come to love that film but i i actually was like welling up with a tear uh in, in this scene maybe 30 minutes into the film uh it's sort of a, a static shot that sven nykvist or nykvist has set up of the two leads and one's in bed and then there's these two doors and they're both sort of like, uh, you know, overblown, overexposed. And the way that, um, uh, BB Anderson, no, is it Liv Allman walks into the room and BB Anderson's in the bed, the way the whole thing was orchestrated and lit and blocked 
was just one of those absolutely magical moments. And I was just, I was just, like, oh yeah, I was like, <laughs> and it was utterly silent, you know, that, and it's just pure visual poetry. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, the tears welling up. I'm like, this is incredible, absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's not the opening sequence, but yeah. it's, you know, it's a part in the film that I'll never ever forget. Yeah, I don't recall, but I think Persona was in my top five movies to look at. Yeah, it was. I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Um, and, and for that reason, for exactly what you're talking about, you know, it's just it's the cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous, and that opening is it's unparalleled in my opinion. Um, although there are three I have above it, but whatever, it's it's all random. <laughs> <laughs> so, hmm, Chris, number four. Um, my number four is the very uh, bizarre opening to Tom Tiefer's Lola Rent. Oh. Or run, Lola, run. Awesome. Yeah. When you were talking about Requiem for a Dream, I, I thought of it. I thought of run, Lola, run, but then I thought, I'm not going to say anything because I figured it would be in your top five. Oh. It is. It is. Oh. Run, Lola, run is probably in one, my top ten of movies of all time. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I love it. I show it every single semester uh, that I teach because it's just it's so great. And that opening, the allusions to soccer and philosophy, and then you've got the the animation. Yeah, I know, right? The tick, 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 that cuckoo clock. Yeah, uh-huh. and Tom Tom Teak for actually, and the music is so great because it's yeah. got this kind of dance Euro techno dance. Yeah, and I I, I, I actually work out a lot to to the Run the La Run soundtrack because it's, it's, it's just dr- it's good it's to so drive good. to too. If you're doing a long distance oh, drive, yeah. next time oh, you drive to Detroit, it's great to drive to. Oh yeah, it's, <laughs> I can't <laughs> tell you how many times I have because my my car has a sunroof, uh-huh. so I will throw open the sunroof, throw open all the windows, and then just crank that while driving down the turnpike. Oh my god, it's great. It's great. Love, yeah, love, a great love, opening. love, love, love. It's a great yeah. opening because when you look at the entire film, it's all in there in a way because it sets it up. You know, there's, it is. I don't remember mm-hmm. the exact quote, but there, there are 60 minutes. The ball is round. Minutes. Yep. Exactly. Right. And everything else yeah. is pure. I think he said everything else is pure chance or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And then let the game begin. Yeah. Close the, the soccer ball up or the, the foosball up. Foosball. And that's how, and that's how the, the, uh, it begins, and you have Lola running through that kind of spiral thing, and she's punching in the credits. Yeah. Uh, oh my God! Yeah. It's just it's yeah. I it's get such goosebumps. A it's I, I screen it in one of my classes, um, and and uh, you know absolutely, it, it's a great reason excuse to watch it. You know, mm-hmm. every every four months because mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a masterpiece, and, and students love it. Yeah. yeah, you know, oddly though, it's funny you should mention that because. The majority of them always do, and then there's like ten percent that just they're they're just worn out by it. They even yeah. though it's like only eighty minutes or something, they're just kind of like they're worn out and kind of fatigued by the whole thing, and and did not enjoy it. And I'm like, that's what I love about it, you know. It's, I yeah, remember exactly. um, I used to show that all the time to classes. I haven't in years, but. Um, I remember there are two things about that movie that's interesting for teaching purposes, uh, or one's interesting for teaching purposes, one's just weird. Um, when he gets hit by the ambulance in the second narrative, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I was shocked a Me few too. times. No, no, I was shocked by that, but I was shocked by my students' response. I I started to hear laughter. Wow. Um, after a while, and and it happened once, and I was like, "What are you guys laughing at? It's not then, funny." And then it happened again the next semester, and I asked him, I said, why do you laugh at that part when he's getting hit by the 
ambulance. It's, I mean, you know, and they're like, it's just because it's it's the look. They're like, some people say it's the look on the ambulance driver's face, and some people say that it's just so ridiculous because you've already been through the narrative once, and now again someone dies, and you're just like, oh, it's like a, it's like a nervous laughter, like a tense laughter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I guess I buy that, but it, I was like almost offended, you know, for you know, for the director and for myself. I'm like, what the, what are you laughing about? But um, I've come to expect that, I guess, a little bit. You, you, you guys haven't had that uh, experience in your classes. I haven't had anybody laugh at it, but I did do I did conduct an experiment one one semester where I showed them the, without the captions, without the, the translated subtitles, and they had to watch the film in German okay. and figure out what was going on. And they got it; they nailed it. The whole thing, mm-hmm. pretty it's much. Fun, it's funny you mention that because I um, that's the other thing I was going to say. Actually, was that I um, I would never do that to a stupid student. That sounds cruel to me, but it's inter- <laughs> it's an interesting uh, experiment. But I uh, I always show it with the subtitles, and. Um, you know, because you know, students are often uh, uh, resistant to black and white movies or movies with subtitles, right? And I think Run Lola Run's a good one because you forget you're reading the subtitles because you can mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. And there's a lot of music and all that. But then sometimes people will ask, like, you know, why don't you use dubbing or whatever? And I hate dubbing. You guys, everybody hates dubbing. Yeah, so I'll yeah, show them terrible. the film and then I'll show them the opening scene. Not the opening scene, but uh, one of the first scenes with um, the scene with uh, Manny in the uh, phone booth. Yeah. I'll show him that with the dubbing yeah. afterwards, and I'll say, and I'll let him watch it for a little while, and then I'll say, "This is why I don't show you movies with dubbing," and they usually get it. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, yeah. that's stupid. That sucks. This doesn't sound like his voice at all. It's terrible." And for some reason, that scene, they're like, "Oh yeah, subtitles are the way to go." So. This little tip for you guys: If you ever show the movie again, you want to do that. Oh, well, you know, I'll definitely be showing it because it's kind of a case study for the history of film course uh, that I teach. And the way we do it is, as you guys know, when you're teaching a history of film course, uh, one of the major cinema producing cultures in, in was Germany, and and so we spend a fair amount of time on Germany. You know, and and then the first actual feature length film we screen is Sunrise. Which is, you know, a product of Fox, but aesthetically is, you know, it's it's fucking Murnau. It's about as German as you can get. Uh, so it, it's it's a film made here on American soil, but you know, very Germanic. And then the very last film we screen is Run Lola Run. So Germany becomes, in a sense, a case study. We can. And obviously a country that had a very messed up 20th century. So we can go from the 20s to the late 90s, actually literally 1999, the close of the century, about in a film that deals largely with wish fulfillment and do-overs. Yeah. Right. So you almost kind of bookend it with German, German film. Oh, it is. It is bookended. Yeah. Yeah. With, with German. And that's the I used to do it within the mood for love. Uh, uh, because of when I first started teaching, mm-hmm. it was just after Hong Kong had come back to China. You know, it was part of mainland. Uh, so we, uh, but then I just decided somewhere along the line to to move over to Run Lola Run. Yeah, uh, in the mood for love. God, it's such a gorgeous film. Oh boy, is yeah. it ever. Anyway, that might have been in my top five movies to look at as well. Actually, <laughs> but anywho, um, where are we? Uh, that was yeah, my number four. That really so elicited a lot of discussion. That yeah, well, that's such a great choice. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. And we all Thank know you. it so well, too, which is great. Um, Got my number four queued up. Number four. Good. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. 
the 1930s, even the great city of Metropolis was not spared the ravages of the worldwide depression. In the times of fear and confusion, the job of informing the public was the responsibility of the Daily Planet, a great metropolitan Slow zoom in to the comic panel of the Daily Planet. <laughs> the globe starts to spin. We head out into outer space. You guys know what happens, you know. It's um, and and John Williams carries the rest, and uh, we get into the bump it bump 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 it bump, and you know the rest. It's it's and I when I say Superman, you know the original Superman from 1978. I'm not just talking about the credit sequence here. Uh, uh, it, I'm also I'm really talking about just the whole setup, the first ten minutes, because you know after the the credits we we move into the planet Krypton. We see Jor El. We see him arguing. We see him trying to you know convince those that that the planet is doomed. We see him preparing his son for intergalactic flight and so on. And so then that's. That's more than the first ten minutes, but it's also it's it's not a hundred and twenty minute film. So it, it it you know when when you correct the running time, it's basically the first fifteen sixteen minutes is actually the first ten minutes of the film, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's I think that I've said you know on the podcast to you guys before that this is still my favorite uh, comic book uh, adaptation of all time for a lot of different reasons. But this opening is so beautifully nostalgic. The way, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but there's like these curtains that open in the beginning as the little girl starts talking about it. And then there's Action Comics number one, and she starts flipping through the pages, you know, it's black and white. And then you have that incredible, you know, uh, fanfare, the Superman fanfare that John Williams composes and, and Brando and the whole nine yards. And I and Jeffrey Unsworth's cinematography. I mean, this is the man that shot 2001. This is the man that shot Cabaret, one of the finest uh, cinematographers that ever lived. And, you know, I, it's just, it's it's how you open a film. <laughs> That's all yeah. I can say about Superman. It is really great. It is. Yeah, and it's doing some interesting work, too, because it was, I mean, it's one of the first superhero movies based on a comic book that that really achieved that blockbuster status. Yeah, probably you know, I think it was the first, you yeah, know. Yeah, so it had a lot of it had a lot of weight on it, it in a, a certain Puzo way. Script, you yeah. know, Rando and Hackman and Glenn Ford and yeah. filming on three continents simultaneously. Yeah. It's so, just 70 millimeter. So starting with the with the comic panel really makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. That's that's a good one. That's a that's a really good one. Wow. Uh, again, not on my radar, but yeah. Excellent. 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 Cool. That was your number three, right? Four. That was your number four. Okay. Now we're on number three. Okay. Great. Great. Did great. you do your four, Eric? Didn't did. I? Uh, Persona was my four. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's how I have it written down here. So. <laughs> So I hope that's what that's what I said. So, yeah, that is what yeah. you said. Okay, good, good, good. So now we're on number three. Who's up, guys? I'll start. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, do it. Um, this is interestingly enough. This is my only musical on the list. Mm. Um, which is interesting because that's my genre of specialization. But I love the opening to this musical because it's such a it's a weird film. It's a weird opening, but it's so good. It's it's the opening to Norman Jewison's Jesus Christ Superstar, okay, which is the 
film version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's rock opera. And I normally, I normally am a huge critic of Lloyd Webber. I, I hate most of his stuff. But he hit the ball out of the park with Jesus Christ Superstar. I agree. Yeah. And the opening is so cool because it's very – it's kind of like self-reflexive where the the like the actors are driving out into the desert in buses to basically set up and do this like recreation of the passion of Jesus. So you see at the very beginning everyone getting set up, right? They're getting their costumes on and and, and – and Ted Neely puts on the white robe, and he emerges as he emerges as Jesus. And you have uh, Car- Anderson as uh, as as Judas, and and I forget the actor who played Herod. But you know, everyone's kind of like get suiting up, right? And it's 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 got it's this, this wild kind of amalgamation of the the time t- you know taking place. Certain elements in the mise en scene take place at the time of Christ, and then other aspects of it, like like the. The Sadducees and the Pharisees have these wild costumes, and they're flanked with guys like with uh, their soldiers are flanked with machine guns and and all that. So it's this kind of weird, weird thing. But it's all about the 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 music, right? It's all about this this conflict and uh, this kind of contemplation on the relationship of Judas and Jesus. And uh, I'm not I'm not at all religious at all in 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 the least bit, but. It's uh, um, it's one of my favorite musicals, and the opening is so neat how they kind of set this up, and then they all get into character and they just do it, and it's uh, it's it's a wonderful musical. If you've never seen it on stage, um, Ted Neely and Carl Anderson pretty much came became the iconic Jesus and Judas, and they they after the film, that's pretty much all they did for the rest of their career. Um, they went on tour. They did it on Broadway. And, and when um, Anderson, who played Judas, died, um, I think in 2006, um, they were in the middle of doing it again on tour, Jesus Christ Superstar. And they became kind of the iconic Jesus and, 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 and Judas. And it's, uh, it's a, it's, I mean, it's an opera. It's a rock opera. And, of course, it was controversial when it came out. It was, you know, it was the 70s. I think 73 is when JCS came out. Uh, and it was controversial. I mean, a lot of religious groups hated it. They didn't like the idea of Jesus singing rock and roll. And, and Judas was black. And, you know, and, and the original Broadway version, when they sing the main number, Jesus Christ Superstar, the dancing girls behind Judas are topless. Yeah, it's, just, it's just crazy, crazy shit. But man, oh, man. Um, it's got some fantastic stuff. And I think it was, I, I remember hearing an interview with Stephen Colbert. I think it was Stephen Colbert. And he said that Herod's song from Jesus Christ Superstar is one of his favorite songs from all of musical theater. Cause it's so funny. I mean, the scene with Herod is just so funny, but that opening, it's a really, really cool opening. And then it gets the, the, you know, so it plays the overture and then it goes right on to right into heaven on our minds. By uh, Heaven on Their Minds by Judas, and a uh, really, really neat movie. If you haven't I seen have to it, I agree with you, uh, Chris. And 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 I mean, the only thing I'm surprised about is maybe your placement of it, because I thought maybe I have two musicals in my uh, honorable mentions, and I'm surprised uh, one of these two wasn't in your top five. But you surprise me always in your top tens, and uh, I'm a big fan of that movie too. I never saw the musical, 
but I agree with you. It's the one Andrew Lloyd Webber I like, I think, more. I'm less critical of him than you are, but it's the one I like the best. I just love the, the, the music, I'm, you know, and I, love, and I love the visualization of the film. And like you said, it's just crazy and it's out there. And um, I used to listen to that album, you know, in the 70s as a kid. I used to play, um, oh, I try not to move on to. Um, I don't know how to love him. No, no um, everything's, everything's all right. Everything's all right. He used to play that over and over and over. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and then I don't know if you did you ever see the Mr. Show um, parody of it? No, the, I haven't. Oh, you know what? We need to link to that in the show notes. We okay. can find it maybe on, I don't know. Uh, I've never seen that either. It oh, sounds right. funny as hell. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It's, check this shit out. It's, this, it's, this <laughs> it's really, I forget what it's called. It's got a really, really bizarre name. It's not Jesus Christ Superstar. They, they, they come up with something ridiculous. And it's very, it's very well done, though. Um, God, it's funny. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's a really surprising choice. And 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 the more I think about it, the more I think it's it's a great choice too. Yeah. It's thanks, thanks. It's it's a. I've seen it in the theater. It's a one that a lot of theaters, a lot of community theaters, do it. Um, but they shouldn't because <laughs> I've yeah I've seen it, I've seen it a few times. I have um, too, actually. Oh my god! Yeah. If unless you have a Jesus who really is good and a Judas for that matter, uh, it can get butchered because it's such it's so hard. I mean, you you have to really get into that upper register for some of those those wailing like. Wah! You know, when he's, when he's really, yeah, when he's when he's singing up there in that high register, man. If you don't have a Jesus who can really get a good set of pipes, um, then it's it's not pleasant to listen to. By the way, Chris, I just I, I will link to it in the show notes, but it's called Jeepers Creepers Semi Star. <laughs> Jeepers Creepers, <laughs> the biggest failure in Broadway history, and it's got Jack Jack Black's in it. So, it's oh nice. God, I, I will be watching that. Yep. Uh, I will be watching that. It's tonight. all the way back from 1996. It's a, you know, it's it's way back. But yeah, we'll. We'll link to that because it's hilarious. Sounds mm, good. Sounds, sounds great. great. That's All right. Well, that's my number. That's my number three, guys. Okay. All right. uh, Nick, you want to go for three? Sure. Uh, I think I've got it queued up. Let me just double check here. Um, yes, I do. See if you guys know this. Ooh. Okay. I think I know that. Yeah, any ideas, guys? Is that The Exorcist? It sure is The Exorcist. <laughs> that's what I thought. I was like, that sounds yeah. really familiar. That's The Exorcist. Yeah, it's The Exorcist. Very that good. opening is, go oh God, that opening gives me chills. It's, a, it's, it's one of the finest prologues of a novel that I've ever written. And many you, could, you might think that, you know, when they're adapting the film, was it important to even, you know, there's, there's seven to nine minutes we could trim from the film or however long it runs. Uh, but it, it's, it's absolutely crucial, you know, to, to the film, uh, that whole prologue in, in Iraq, the dig in Nineveh 
where Vax von Cito encounters this ancient, you know, nemesis that he's going to fight again. Uh, and it sets up the frailty of his health and it sets up the nature of good and evil and of time. Uh, and it's shot beautifully by, by Owen Roisman and, and Bill Friedkin. And it's just, it's the opening of the exorcist, you know? And, um, when we, when that whole prologue ends and we cut to, Georgetown and the the cameras going into the home where you know Reagan and Chris McNeil are you know the home they're renting while she's making this film, and we sort of the camera zooms into this window that's been opened you know uh, in into her bedroom into Reagan's bedroom it's it's clearly letting us know that where we've just left in in Iraq is now entered into this young girl's bedroom. Um, and sets up the next, you know, 110 minutes. And um, I put it up there very highly because no one who had, you know, not read the book was expecting this sort of extravagant, beautifully filmed. They had, you know, they actually took it, you know, they got a small unit together and they went to Iraq and to shoot this in 73. I mean, it was kind of unheard of, you know, they're like, you know, let's, you know, we're it's California. We've got desert. Just go out and shoot it. And they're like, no, we're going to Iraq, we're going to make this, you know, and it's, it's so brave. It's so beautiful. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of an art house opening to this horror film. It's really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very, very good one. Um, I th- think I, I have my, I have the sound for mine queued up. My, my, my top three are going to be kind of unusual, probably not, not, um, guessable perhaps, but, um, Reznor uh, opening title sequence for the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh yeah! Wow. Yeah. Ooh, is that is that opening sequence where he does? Uh, is that immigrant song? Yes. Not, yeah. Yeah. It's it's um, it's amazing. I remember seeing that in the theater, and uh, I was just like, "What the? What am I in for?" I'm talking about the David Fincher girl with the dragon tattoo, not the Swedish original Swedish version. Doesn't the Opening sequence, Eric, isn't it uh, kind of very Fincher-esque, seven S seven esque kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. it is. It is. Um, it's it's this Trent Reznor soundtrack with these really, it's a real driving song, you know, Trent Reznor style. But it's got this crazy monochromatic uh, images with all this like looks like oil or something black liquid. F- blobbing around everywhere and it's got a face with this liquid on it and it's just it's really just bizarre and it's a set piece in itself and 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 the opening for that i'm talking about is just the title sequence like not the opening of the film um which is this kind of it's it's basically a music video right at the uh at the beginning of the um at the beginning of the of the movie, and I remember seeing it in the theater with with you know the whole surround sound thing, and I remember getting through that title sequence, going, "Okay, I am ready for this movie." <laughs> you know, I am ready to see whatever it is you're about to show me. You know, it just really sets this incredible um, 
like just mood, you know, and it's it's worth watching all by itself. And I can, we can put it on Facebook or the or the show notes too. But yeah, my my reaction to that is uh, a couple actually. Uh, first off, um, I saw that film first, and then I and then I went to the Swedish uh, trilogy, and and uh, I think the Swedish trilogy is amazing. What a great character we have. In in Lisbeth and uh, you know why the hell they're not making the sequels here in the states? I yeah. utterly on me. It's it's a fabulous role in a, in a, in a fabulous narrative. Three great movies. Um, I don't know what, what they completely dropped the ball there. Yeah, but uh, and, and but the other thing I was going to say is I remember I was with Eric in a Best Buy and that had dropped down to some really oh yeah i forgot about this 999 or something like that and i had it in my hand and i'm like oh i'm buying that and and i wound up setting it down about 10 minutes later and i eric said we're not going to get it and i thought you know i really loved this but i think once was enough and that's funny because i can rewatch the swedish version maybe it's because i i i actually i'm like i have a major crush on numi uh, uh numi rapace mm-hmm. but um uh, you know i i'm i just wasn't really all that excited to watch it again it's a heavy and depressing and sort of like it, it's a film with a lot of like blackness to it you yeah. know and it kind of weighs you down yeah. and and by the time you're getting around to that third act it's just it's it's repressive yeah for sure I read the books before I saw either one of them, and mm-hmm. uh, and there it's you know it's fairly consistent with the books, um, but I, I do like the Swedish version as well. I agree with you on that, um, but I do like the, I like the Fincher version a lot. Yeah, me yeah. too. But you know, when I'm looking at YouTube, I just noticed the Social Network pops up on the side. Damn that's also, that's too, also yeah. a really good opening. That's a really good opening. The Social that's Network. a really good opening too. <laughs> I have both of those soundtracks, um, just because I'm. A, because I love them. B, because for completeness purposes, because I think I have everything that Trent Reznor's ever done with Nine Inch Nails and with How to Destroy Angels. Um, I, I've seen him in concert. I, I'm a huge, huge fan of his work. Um, and those are both wonderful soundtracks, and they're both great openings. And I yeah. really, really loved his take on Immigrant Song. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. Yeah, I yeah. actually would would, would stand. I think it stands up against the original pretty well. <laughs> yeah, I can say that. I can see that. I saw Nine Inch Nails once. Oh, oh they were wonderful in concert. Good. One of the best concerts I ever went to. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, the light show was amazing. Oh my god! We have this. Uh, just a real quick side side story at, at our Kroger here near us. There's a uh, at the at the market. There's this woman, this older woman. She's probably in her fifties or so. She's very odd. You know, she's like very, um, like she's very good at her job, but she's like she kind of like hovers over you if you're in the self checkout or if she's in the checkout, she's just like very like wants to make sure everything's okay. And wants to like do everything right. And she's very like high strung and just you know, kind of just really kind of not you know, kind of interesting. Like, I don't know, 50 women, just very strange. And one day we were talking to her. It wasn't like, she's like, we're like, well, what are you doing this weekend? She's like, Oh, I'm going to go see nine inch nails. Huh. I was like, what? And what? Rebecca and I look at each other and we're like, what did you st- yeah. Oh, I love I love Trent Reznor. I'll do any. I'll see anything by Trent Reznor. I love the Nine Inch Nails. I've seen them every time they've come to the town. I think I think she did say that, but I'm not sure. But, but, <laughs> but, but it's good. I think she said that, but it's good for the story, you know. Yeah. But uh, and, was, and, and we left the store, and I was like, you know, I mean, just another lesson that you you should not judge a book by its cover. 
you know, because I would never, ever have guessed that. But she was, like, really excited about telling us about how she's going to go see Nine Inch Nails that evening. So. The Nine Inch Nails. The Nine Inch Nails, yeah. I don't know if she really that's said great. that or not, but I just like telling the story like that. So. That's 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 great. <laughs> I saw, actually, when I, I saw them at Pine Knob, I think, and I, yeah, there was people of all ages there. There's, yeah, sure. there's, yeah they sure. have a very wide, wide uh, audience. Yeah. So that's my three. That's my number three. Um, is that are we done with number three? Are we on number two now? I think so. Yeah, because Chris yep. did his my yeah. Yeah, we're on number two. Excellent. Who wants to go first for number two? Why am I talking like this? I don't know. Um, I guess I'll go. Uh, go for it, Nick. Okay. Well, my number two. Little the little preamble to that one is I rarely, rarely, rarely will watch it. I watched it today for the sake of where to place it in my top five, and I placed it at number two. And that's because I can't really sit through it. I have a hard time. Uh, and it's it's uh, Pixar's Up. Oh, uh. is uh, it's just too goddamn brutal. Oh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it really is. But then I think that's why I just have to, you know, it deals with such magnificence, uh, the scope, the human, the human arc of, of, you know, of love and marriage and loss. And, and, uh, there's a, there's that, that crippling, um, uh, miscarriage scene too. Then it's like, you know, this is amazing that they would include all this stuff in a film that would be targeted towards, you know, preteens and stuff. And it's, you know, but for those of you who aren't familiar with it, I know obviously you guys are. It's just, um, it's just one of the most remarkable montages I've ever seen. Uh, and from a from an emotional standpoint, I think it rates for me as like the the greatest opening. Um, well, you know, in I, terms of the montage, yeah. I I want to I want to talk about this at some length because spoiler up is my number one actually. Oh, <laughs> and, spo- and here's a spoiler. Here's a spoiler. Up is also my number two. <laughs> wow! Uh, and it's funny because we have not talked about this at all. Uh, I've and we all came up with up in our top two. That is crazy! Wow. That I, I saw up at the theater, oh and I gosh. remember when I saw that montage. Yeah. Um, it because up came out just right after I had gotten divorced, and oh my god, that montage just killed me and i watched it i it's so weird nick great minds think alike i also watched it again today and i was like oh my god with difficulty with difficulty because it's so brutal but it's not it's not just the montage it's the it's michael giacchino's score which i think he won the oscar for that score is so beautiful it, it's the da 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 da. It's light and it, it, but it's nostalgic and oh my god, it's such a wonderful opening. Oh my god, up is one. It's a wonderful film, but you're right. You hit the nail right in the head. It's raw emotion in that opening, and I was also very surprised that they included so much of what they included. Well, yeah, like I said, a film that was aimed human yeah. experience uh, is so beautifully encapsulated in a five minute montage. Is like, how do you even do that? And then to do it so well, it, oh, yeah. it's, it's pure artistry, you know. 
It really is. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't see it in the film, in the movie, in the theater. I'm sorry to say. Um, really? No, no I, I did not see it in the theater. You know, you, you can't see everything, you know. Um, but here's the funny thing. I was warned by more than one person that I that, that I would end up crying at the end of the opening <laughs> sequence. So I was steeled for it. I was ready for it. You know, I thought, and I was like, yeah, yeah. Like people tell me I was sad at the opening sequence. I'm going to cry, whatever, whatever. And by the time I got to the end of that opening sequence, I was like, <laughs> I was bawling, man. Yep. I was like, oh my mm-hmm. God. Like I was actually like steeled for it. And I still, it still got me. Yeah. It punches you in the gut, doesn't it? Hey, the whole that's time. Your, the whole that's time, your number one, Eric? Yeah, it's my number one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, I guess I'll say I'm done talking about it then because I don't want to. No, know, that's that's why I want to talk about it now. I figure we'll get it out of the way. But since it's Chris's number two, your number two, and my number one, okay, well, we can just we all get it out of the way. Okay, get it out of the way, you know, because I don't need to talk about it again. But um, yeah, that's that's funny. You know, the whole time we've been doing these top five, top tens, have, has this ever happened? When no, we had one I don't that was think so, so. Close to the top. All three not, of us. Not all three of us. We've had ones that were very close. And then we've had two of us have the same one, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think part of that is just we know we, ju- we we have in certain, I think in certain aspects, we have very similar taste. Yeah. But this one takes you, um, I'm, I'm surprised by this one. I thought I was this would be the surprise only one with too, up. Yeah. And all three of us had it. Yeah. I'm surprised we all Suck. had it. Ah, that's awesome. That's so crazy. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. So your number two is up. My uh, Chris, my number and, two and is number up. Two is up. So I guess I should go with my number two. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Um, my number two is um, Drive. Do you know this film? Sure. Okay. Yeah, the Ryan Gosling Drive. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling yeah. film uh, Drive, directed by I can, I can never pronounce the guy's name, but um, name, yeah. yeah, his Refin or whatever. Um, the the this is an interesting pick for me because most of these openings that we've been talking about set up the film in a certain way set the mood you know they're they're you know they're they, they're the beginnings of good films in my opinion the only good thing about drive is the opening scene i i don't think it's a very good movie mm-hmm. i don't like a lot of characters i don't like some of the acting uh, the plotting is kind of weird there are some good set pieces in it but i don't really like the film that much but the opening is amazing absolutely amazing and it's you know it's ryan gosling and he's um it starts with him on the phone i think right and um and uh there's a there's a voiceover you know he's saying something like a hundred thousand streets in the city you don't need to know the route you give me a time and a place i give you a five minute window it's uh, i'm talking off screen uh those five minutes i'm yours whatever goes down i'm yours minute either side you're on your own so it's like setting up like this is what he does he gives you five minutes he's the driver and then it goes to the actual action scene and the entire thing has no dialogue and yeah. it goes on it must be it's, it's i think about 7 minutes 6 or 7 minutes long and it's just this getaway and he is you know he he pulls up to the place these two guys come up in masks they break into the place he watches he gets his watch out and tie, and, and and clasps it to his um uh steering wheel and he waits and one of them gets in but he's waiting for the other one and he's just you know tick 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 tick, tick you know and it's so tense finally they get they start going away and he's playing this cat and mouse game with the helicopters and the and the cop cars and i won't give away the end of the opening because it's really cool how he does it but it's just this incredibly tense um visually stimulating opening with 
with no or almost no dialogue, and it's just Ryan Gosling's face with a toothpick. <laughs> yeah, with a toothpick. Very calm. He's he's a getaway driver. He's doing these interesting little, like I said, cat and mouse things. He's obviously he knows what he's doing. He's obviously good at it. He's got that toothpick, and uh, it's just a really, really masterful editing with 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 without dialogue. It's it's really great. Um, and like I said, I don't really like the rest of the movie, but that that opening is something else. Yeah, I like Drive a lot. Uh, I, I watched it over at, at Don's, and uh, I, I, I liked it a lot. But there was something that kept it from from me calling it uh, really, really good or ex- or excellent or great or anything yeah. like that. And I think it was I had a hard time not only relating but believing in Gosling's character. Yeah, some yeah. of his the, the action. I mean, I loved the Albert Brooks. You know that the the Albert Brooks Ryan Gosling through line worked better for me than the than the Ryan Gosling. What's the girl he falls for? I don't remember. You know, I think there was something about their relationship he, in the, that just I found really yes. un- unbelievable. Same and here. After yep. coming from Ryan Gosling in uh, um, uh, Blue Valentine, where there wasn't a false note anywhere, mm. to this film where and I'm not I'm not trying to compare the films, but I just didn't find this thing going on with this girl and her son what is it you know yeah. like believable not at all and, and uh, so like the crime elements of the story i thought were fabulous i didn't yeah. fu- i didn't buy the other stuff though. oh yeah because it has um what's his name uh from breaking breaking bad um what's the breaking bad guy what's his, what's the actor's name brian cranston yeah he's in there for a minute right um he's good yeah yeah the crime stuff was pretty good i agree with you but the whole through line of the love story and then the right. thing with uh christina hendrix oh the, yeah interesting Batman. little sidestep into the film that's true that was really it but like weird you know yeah almost, like, almost david lynch territory <laughs> almost almost yeah yeah that's a good way to put it but not quite unfortunately but, you know yeah it didn't hang together at all the movie but that opening man that's great. I've that's- I've watched that opening when it was streaming on Netflix. I would just watch that opening from time that's to time, great. just just to watch it and then stop the movie. <laughs> over and over, I would do that. I've shown it to classes too. That's but, great. Yeah. So that's my number. That's my number two. You know, my number one is, which uh, is, your is up. Two. Yeah. Which is right. So we can. Well, we can get we can get my number one out of the way because we've already talked about it, and that's Kane. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. It's pretty textbook. No, I'm sorry. Oh no, it's fine. Don't 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 apologize. Kane's just one of those movies I can fall asleep to. I can watch it over and over and over and over and over again. Love the opening. I think about it. Wonderful. So we've <laughs> already right. talked about it. So. Yeah, we have. So uh Nick, Nick what's, what's your, number, your one? number one? All right, guys, here we go. <laughs> You guys know it already, don't you? <laughs> so, so, apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, yep. yeah. Absolutely. For me... That is a really good opening. Why did I miss that? How did I miss that? That's a... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. Go. Well, I think it's exactly what you're saying, Eric. For me, I made that... I think that's the greatest movie opening of all time because of the total serendipity of it all. 
Uh, this was not storyboarded, planned. Oh, here we go. By the way, as I'm talking, the napalm's about to come. You know, and just the entire, and you know, and this is no, this is not some simple digital. You know, this is a practical, actual blowing up of a jungle here. It's like, um, there it goes. There it goes. Boom, boom, boom. So. I think the thing, the reason I'm just so crazy about Apocalypse Now is because it's something, as as they talk about in the cutting edge, which, whenever we screen it, is it was completely formed in the editing room. This was second unit footage, you know, mm-hmm. that was wound up being used for the opening because Coppola said, well, there we go. It's like helicopters, napalm, jungle. That's like the whole film. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we get... Um, uh, uh, the ed- Walter Murch talking about you know the the um, fan as we go into Martin Sheen's um, hotel room mimicking the sound of the helicopter blades whirling you know and that's like whoa what the hell is going on here and then that series of like intricate dissolves as we go over Martin Sheen's character and um, and you know the whole opening of that film uh, which culminates with him saying you know shit Saigon you know is just for me, it represents like the happiest and most sort of fortuitous and serendipitous aspects of, of film, which is uh, all this material was shot. And then in post-production, it was it was brought together in a really magical way by multiple editors. It was, you know, there was like two or three different editors working on this film. I think Merch did most of the assembly, but I mean, uh, there were there were others that worked on it. And uh it, it it just it sets everything up so perfectly uh, that it, it it really is a template and and also for screenwriters too because um, you have a great example of a character. Well, we're seeing and hearing things, but we don't necessarily they're not mimicking the on screen action. So you know while we have Martin Sheen's voiceover, we see him doing all sorts of other things, you know, uh, getting drunk and, and going nuts and waiting for his next mission. And it's how you can, how you can really add multiple tiers to storytelling. Uh, and so I, for me, I chose Apocalypse because it's, I can't think of a, like a greater opening, you know? Yeah. To what was potentially a very messy, uh, uneditable, I don't know if there's such a word, uh, film. Uh, that's a great choice. Yeah, it's it's it is one of the great openings of all time. I, I don't know why I didn't think of it. It's just so that napalm and the jungle and the I love the the sound matching of the of the um, ceiling fan, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It, it it lets you know what you're in for too, man. That's a bizarre movie. Holy moly. <laughs> To me, it's always been. I've always maintained that it was that, that was actually Coppola's masterpiece, much more so than The Godfather, which I thought mm-hmm. was kind of a walk in the park for him. You know, it was it was an Italian American making a, a film about you know uh, the 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 mafia, the Cosa Nostra, and you know I think that working with Brando and 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 working with the Puzo screenplay and the novel and everything, I thought that in the casting did half the work and. I thought, like, The Godfather, as great as a film as it is, uh, I thought Apocalypse Now pushed him way, way, way farther out into completely madness, in mad, like, maddening territory where he, you know, he went crazy. Everybody went crazy on that. Martin Sheen died, you know? Didn't he actually, like, he actually was pronounced dead for a minute or something after that? <laughs> yeah. 
you guys know the 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 uh, Hearts of Darkness documentary, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, right, he, right. Yeah, I mean, he, he had to. Repl- I mean, he had that like massive heart attack. I mean, it's just like everybody went crazy on that film, and yet it it, it turned out this. It turned for me. It's it's like one of my top three war films of all time. It's just a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so good, so good. Excellent, cool. Well, I think we've done this, huh? Jeepers Creepers. I Jeepers Creepers. Semi star. Do you mind so, if I quickly read my honorable mentions? No. Yeah, sure. No, no, I won't. I won't uh, do anything but just read them okay. because there's a bunch. Okay. Mm-hmm. I say this because you know I had to assemble a large number, and then I'm like, what makes it into the top five? What makes it in the top ten? So here's all my uh, honorable mentions. There's a lot. Uh, Dracula is risen from the grave. Seven. West Side Story, Sound of Music, Citizen Kane, Playing by Heart, all the Bond films, because let's face it, they're like made for the pre- the teaser, uh, but On Her Majesty's Secret Service is my favorite, Clockwork Orange, Scent of a Woman, Chaplin, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which almost made the top ten. Yeah, Raiders I could see. Yeah. 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 Did you have honorable uh, mentions, Chris? I did not. Me neither. Okay, obviously. Um, all right, cool, cool. Well, if you uh, if you like this, you can go back and look at episode twenty three, where we talk about our top five endings. Um, if you if you like, uh, you can find show notes at thatsarapshow dot com, where we will put uh, our lists up there. You'll see a side by side list of of all these, so you can review it and you know tell us what we missed and and you know tell us your favorite openings. We love to hear from. Uh, from listeners on their favorite openings. If you want to support us, you can uh, you know join our Facebook page or, or uh, you can go to Patreon and, and pitch in a buck or two or whatever you want per episode just to kind of help us fund this and get back to zero um, on the cost of actually producing the show. That would be great. But either way, you know, like us on Facebook. Come talk to us. We love listener feedback. Oh, gosh, do we ever... Uh, for That's a Wrap, I am Eric Marshall. I'm Chris Gullen. And I'm Nick Schlegel. And thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. See you later. Cut. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. I'm Eric Marshall. I'm Chris Collin. <laughs> Let's do that again. All right.